All right. Why does that question elicit so much conversation? <laughs> How many of you said uh, the job I have right now? No, no, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't do it. But <laughs> especially if you work here, don't do it. So <laughs> it's great to be with you here this morning. You know, this morning we are uh, continuing our study in the book of Philippians. We're in chapter two. I want to invite you to open your Bibles there to Philippians chapter two. Last week. We talked about, as we've been studying through this book, he kind of took a turn and got, Paul was getting very practical now. And this is a letter that he's written to a church. It's a gathering of people in a town called Philippi. That's why we call it the book of Philippians. And it's a group of Christians figuring out what it looks like to live the Christian life. What does it mean as they've discovered life in Jesus to now learn to follow him? What does that kind of look like? And so Paul's been explaining some of the motivation and heart and, and all of this throughout the book of Philippians. And in chapter two, he started getting very practical. And last week we looked at this idea of certain things that one of the things that's very important in Christianity is, is this idea of unity and striving together for the faith. And so we used a practical example last week of how sometimes there's things that build walls or build fences as we built a fence here on the stage. And, and there's a certain posture of our hearts that can prevent those fences from being built and can actually tear down those walls. And Paul talked about it last week beginning in verse 3 and it talks about humility and how we interact with one another. And not only is that practical for our interactions here with one another at, in a church, but there's very practical implications as it relates to your relationships, maybe in your marriage or with your kids or coworkers or roommates. And, and this week, Paul is actually going to continue that thought, and we're going to revisit a couple of those verses about the importance of humility and having that posture towards one another. But then he's going to touch on the, the greatest example of humility ever, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have a lot to cover today. We're going to jump right in. So in Philippians chapter 2, today I want to begin in verse 3, which is where we, we kind of overlapped that a little bit last week. And he begins, he says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of, me, of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. I think we could probably stop there and redo last week's sermon, right? It, it takes a while for this stuff to sink in and the value of looking out for the interests of others and having a humility of mind in our interactions of ways to uh, break down fences. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite a married couple up here to tell us how they did this last week. You guys ready? <laughs> just kidding. All right, so <laughs> wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Verse 5, <laughs> have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and gave to him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's a lot of stuff to cover in one week, and so we're going to touch on a few of those as we get going. But when we look at this today, again, the idea is how can we as people 
learn how to not build fences, but to break them down. And it begins with this posture of humility. Now, Paul made that clear from the verses we looked at last week. Now, this week, he then gives this long section about Jesus and how Jesus is the example that we want to follow. Now, when we say follow the example of Jesus, most of us, or actually no one in here, are ever going to need to be obedient to God to the point of death on a cross for all of humanity, okay? Make that clear right now. So this is having the attitude that is the same of Christ. So we want to learn about what attitude called that Jesus portrayed that we want to emulate in our own lives. So that's what we're looking at this Week. So as we look at it, though, there's one big question that I want to answer before we continue. And if you like to take notes or have the notes with you, there's a lot of extra verses. We're not going to have time to get into all of those. But this section of Scripture, beginning in verse 6, is what we believe was an ancient hymn. It was actually a song that was sung by the early church, probably all the way back to year 50 or so, that this was a church where the, a song that early church sang about Jesus. And it was one of the, and it actually had drums and electric guitar to it too, just so you know. But all this song was proclaiming truth about who Jesus is. And with these verses here, starting in verse 6 through 11, it's divided and it presents what we call this pretty deep theology or study of God. And it alludes to this idea that Jesus is God. This is one of the sections in scripture that we get our idea of the Trinity, in Christianity. And so without explaining the Trinity in its entirety, because we do not have time to do that, it would take us a long time, but I want to just give you some concepts about the Trinity. And when you hear the Trinity, this is the concept that God is three in one. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's alluded to here. Now, a really quick Basic definition is when we think of the Trinity, and we have a slide on the screen that has a few thoughts for you here. It says there's one God, simultaneously and eternally existing in three distinct people, persons. So you got to know this. It's simultaneously, meaning existing at the same time, and eternally existing, has always existed in three distinct, distinct persons. And these are what we call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person of the Trinity is fully God. And so... There's no, this is a very difficult concept to grasp, and it's one that theologians have been trying to explain from the very beginning, but scripture, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, gives hints that this is how God exists. But nowhere is there a verse or a chapter in the Bible that says, okay, let's take a pause and explain the Trinity for you so you all have it clear. It's a mystery. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, it talks about how unsearchable are the ways of God, how unfathomable is our God, that there are things that we just can't fully understand. And I don't know about you, but I actually think it is a good thing that we cannot fully explain God. Because can you imagine if we could come up with every detail about God as humans and be able to explain who God is? If that was the case, that means that he is not an infinite God, not all-powerful, not transcendent. If we got to the point where we could explain God perfectly, then God would be limited to human reasoning and abilities. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad God does not use human reasoning and abilities. Any of you ever need grace in your life? That is not a human concept, okay? That is a God concept. You get grace when you don't deserve it. Mercy, that is not a human concept, 
I'm going to not give you what you deserve. This is from God. So there is some things about God that are unsearchable. But now let's break down a few of these statements. And again, this is not intended to be exhaustive. This is not intended to have you walk out of here this morning saying like, well, now I understand the Trinity perfectly. No problem. So this is just to give you some concepts to consider. And going back to those three phrases I gave you, the first one is this, that there is one God. We, we, there's many verses that speak about there's only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 is a great one where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And this term is echad, which means one, but it's also this concept that it may have multiple parts, but is one united, there is no other God. In Isaiah 44, 6, I have this slide for you on the screen. It says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. There's all these titles given about Redeemer that are also given to Jesus throughout Scripture. So you have King of Israel, which usually refers to God the Father. You have Redeemer, which refers to Jesus. The Lord of hosts, this is the God of all the heavens. He says, I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. There is one God we find in Scripture. And it's interesting that it's attributed to the Father, to the Son, and in other places to the Spirit. Simultaneously and eternally existing. This is the next phrase. This means that God does not exist in different forms at different times. This is not saying that God is a shapeshifter. Some people have used the analogy of maybe an egg before. This describes God. Well, that falls short because there's a shell and there's a yolk and there's an egg white, saying that that's God, as if God could be anything like an egg. But the problem is that, that yes, it makes one egg, but these are distinct parts that are not equal. But in the Trinity, they're equal. So some people say, well, what about water? Water is liquid. Sometimes it is steam, so it can be gas, and sometimes water can be frozen. It can be solid. But even that falls short because except for scientists have found there is one perfect state with the certain uh, pressure and all this. They can exist at the same time. But the truth is water, steam, and solids exist in different forms at different times. That's not how God is. He's not a shapeshifter. He's eternally and simultaneously existing is three in one. Clear? All right, great. No questions. Good. <laughs> now, I can't explain all that, but this is what is indicated to us through Scripture. Colossians 1.15. I have it on the screen talk, speaking of Jesus. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. So firstborn over all creation. He's, 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 and this firstborn isn't, oh, he was born before all creation. This is saying that his status with God the Father has always been there before creation of time. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Genesis chapter 1 Verses 1 through 2 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was form formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, so here's an indication of Spirit, was moving over the surface of the water. So we have the, the concept of God, three in one, existing for all eternity and at the same time. The next phrase here is, Each person in the Trinity is fully God. So this means that Jesus is fully God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. Next very clear phrase is, but the Father is not the Son. <laughs> the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. We have whole books written about this, by the way, if you want to go deeper. But they are all fully God. Colossians 2, verse 9 says this. Have a for on your screen. For in Jesus, all the fullness of deity 
dwelled in bodily form. All the fullness of God's deity. Not just Jesus was kind of God. Jesus had aspects of God. Jesus was a friend of God. Jesus knew God the Father. No, Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwelled in Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and verse 4. Peter's speaking, and he's speaking to a guy named Ananias who uh, deceived some people, and he said this to him. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to say, you have not lied to men, but to God. He equates the Holy Spirit with being God, not just a force in the universe, not just some um, impersonal kind of movement in the world, but they're all fully God. So when we get to a passage like this in Philippians chapter 2, that describes who Jesus is and has this indication we see God the Father at work, but we see Jesus being fully God. We need to ask a question like, help me understand this a little bit more. And so I just wanted to take those five minutes, which you'll never explain the Trinity in five minutes, but just to take a pause and to present some thoughts for you. And again, those of you who like to go deeper, I have extra verses included in your outline this week, as well as throughout the encounters with God throughout the week. So, Take that side note, and now let's get back to the text. Okay, we're going to get back to the text and and talk about the attitude of Christ. So the attitude of Christ we're looking at here begins in verse 5 again. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he enters into this poem that we just talked about. He enters into this description about Jesus, and he says this. Jesus in verse 6 who existed in the form of God, and by the way, the form here is a Greek word morphe, which doesn't mean he looked like God, means he had the very essence and nature of God. There's another word he could have used called schema, which means he just kind of looked like God. This means, no, he is God. Jesus existed as God. He did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped. Now, one thing I want to show you through this poem We're going to break it down a little bit. How do we understand the attitude of Jesus? Is there's three phrases that you're going to see. Verse 6, 7, and 8. And those are things that Jesus did. His attitude. And then verses 9, 10, and 11 were the response from God the Father. And so we're going to look at each of these as a pair. So the first one is, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard that as something to be grasped. Now I want you to look down at verse 9. This is the second part of the poem. This is meant to correspond. It says this, For this reason also, God highly exalted Jesus, and now he's talking about God the Father, highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name which is above every name. So the first point that I want to talk about here is this. What attitude does Jesus have? What attitude can we take in our lives that will help us interact with others with humility? What is the posture that Jesus has? The first one this is he fully trusted God the Father for his name. What do I mean by name? Name means your identity. It means what, who, what defines you. Jesus, although he was fully God, his name was creator of all. His name was God on high. He, didn't gra- he said, I've set that aside for the sake of humanity. I'm going to trust the plan that God the Father has for me. And I'm going to set that name aside. And God's response was to give him the name above all names. Now, I want to tell you here, God will never give you the name above all names, okay? Not going to happen. Sorry, Kevin. It's not going to happen. At least you laughed at that, Kevin. That's good. So. <laughs> but can we have that attitude? Can we learn to trust God 
with our name. What do I mean? How many of you in here walk around throughout the week with a name that defines you? Well, the truth is all of you do. We all have names that define us. Now, it might not be Ryan. might not be Kevin or Sarah. That's not what I'm talking about. What is it, the name that you have running around in your head that often becomes a source of conflict? That often becomes the one thing that every time you start building fences and barriers with each other, you realize, why does that keep coming up? For some of you, maybe it's your name is perfectionist. Maybe for some of you, your name is, I want to be adequate. It's a long name. Maybe some of you is, I want to measure up. We all have names that we give ourselves. And those usually come in to conflict. I keep putting my hand here because last week I built the fence right here and I keep trying to say, here's the fence board. (laughs) I know for me, so there's, I, I, I shared some examples last week of just, we were kind of doing funny examples of what happens in marriage, and they were all hypothetical. But um, so, one thing for my wife and I, I shared an example of when we, when we travel, uh, when the very first vacation we went on, I said, you know, she said, hey, you can go ahead and plan it, because she loves, because I love planning out travel, but I'd say like, hey, we're going to San Francisco. That was the plan. And, and I learned that that wasn't enough, <laughs> Because it made her feel like, well, what, else, what are we doing while we're in San Francisco? How do I know we're not on schedule? How do we know we're missing something? Where, where are we going to be? And one thing for me, when I heard this, when she said, she said something like, you just don't give enough details. Now, all she said is you don't give enough details. But you know what I heard? You didn't do this well. You are unable. You are inadequate at your job. Did she say that to me? She didn't. Did she even mean that? She actually didn't, I don't think. Did you mean that? Okay. (laughs) She didn't say, oh, you're inadequate. I don't trust you to do this. She was saying, I would like some more details. But a name that I often give myself, and the reason I have this name is because both of my parents were farmers, and then I grew up in the military, and in that world, it's just be army tough, be army strong, do what you got to do. You can do it because if you don't, no one else else is going to do it for you. Toughen up. And so I feel this name I tell myself, and I don't walk around telling myself this, it's, it's a lie that I've been told, is that you need to always be perfect. You need to be adequate. And so if I feel like I'm letting someone down, I don't hear, oh, I could maybe help you with more details. I hear, oh, you don't think I'm measuring up. You don't think that I'm who I think I want to be. Instead of saying something like, you know, I'm not very good at details sometimes. Would you be willing to help me? Do you know how smart that would have been to say? (laughs) If I could go back almost 20 years now, I probably would have said that. I probably could have said that maybe like two weeks ago too if I was smart. but (laughs) But why was that a struggle for me? Because the name that I wanted, I wanted to project a name. Now this is a very practical example. What is the name you have for yourself? Some of you, you've, been, you've told yourself for some reason, maybe you grew up and people have let you down time and time again. And you hate that feeling of being let down. So when someone else, when you feel like you've let someone else down, how does that feel? 
You beat yourself up inside. You think, I can't believe I let you down. And now, then it becomes a conflict because you feel like when that person says, hey, I thought you were going to do this and you didn't, you don't hear, oh, I, accident- I didn't do something. You heard, oh no, I let you down. And now you probably feel the way I felt. And you respond not with compassion or, oh, I'm sorry. You respond with, well, and all of a sudden the guard goes up, right? The fence post because our name because we're confused about what our name is. Because we believe the lies that the world wants us to believe or that we've told ourselves that our name is something else. And what Jesus gives us the example here, and of course Jesus is a perfect example, and it's something, the attitude we want, but he trusts God the Father for his name, for his identity. And he can say, you know, I'm sorry, I want to be better at details, but I'm not always good at it. Can you help me with that? Will you accept me with that? God the Father looks at you and says, you know, I love you. I give you your name. I give you your identity. Edmund Chan calls that living with authenticity. Living with authenticity means we have nothing to hide. You have nothing to hide when you live with authenticity. You can look at people and say, now I'm not saying be lazy and say, okay, I have flaws. Just deal with it. Sorry, honey. You married me. Sometimes I say that. But, uh, <laughs> but what it also means is being, saying, not trying to be a name that you're not or believing the lies that you need to be someone else. You need to be perfect. You need to never let anyone down. You need to always show up. You need to, you know, all of these things that we tell ourselves, they cause conflict. But Jesus was able to say, you know, I trust God the Father with my name. I'm giving up the name of God. I'm trusting. I'm giving up my position, my identity, but I'm going to trust that God has a plan for me. God has me where he has me for a reason. Let's look at the next verses. The next thing he says is this. In verse 7, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. How would you like to create humans and then become one? (laughs) Here's the creator of the universe. Maybe this is too familiar to us to where it doesn't seem profound, but Jesus created, God created us. And he's looking at us and he said, I want you to live this way. And from the very beginning, we said, well, we don't really trust that. We don't really trust you, God. So we want to be like you. We want to be gods. We want to take life into our own hands. And then Jesus is watching humanity go the wrong way for thousands of years. And then Jesus gives up his position to serve us as one of us. What must that be like to go from heaven to like waking up with bad breath? (laughs) Seriously, why would Jesus want to do that? He takes on the form of the servant. Jump down to verse 10. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice this. What do servants do? They bow before their master, right? Jesus is willing to serve, but what's the response? Every knee will one day bow before him. Jesus trusted God the Father for his significance. One of the barriers to our being interacting with one another with humility is our need for significance. We don't want to actually treat people with humility. We don't want to consider others as better than ourselves because what might that make us look like? We might just look lower than them. 
We struggle with significance, do we not? A few years ago, I guess it's been about nine years ago now, my wife and I and kids, we lived in Israel and I was studying at Hebrew University there. And when we came back, I was a church planter in Orange County, I was working at a church. And to fund that endeavor, I got a job at Starbucks. I've talked about it before. Because they gave health benefits for $20, for 20 hours a week. That was fantastic. But so I took that job and, and I went in, I said, can I see the manager? And a kid walks out from back who used to be a student in my old youth group. So I have this 22-year-old who I used to drive on trips all over the country and he came out to give me a job making $8.75 an hour. And I just got back from studying in one of the world's top 100 universities among some of the most renowned professors. And now I'm looking at my boss, who is 22 years old, who I've had to yell at before for being stupid. (laughs) That did nothing to my confidence or significance, I just want to say. People would walk in and they naturally look to the oldest person working there And they'd say, like, hey, are you the manager? I'm like, "Mm, no. Oh, are you the supervisor? No, see that 18-year-old right there? She's my supervisor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the one texting. Yes, her right now. Not paying attention? She's my boss. Yeah, you can talk to her if you need anything. Yeah, there was a wrestle with my significance. I eventually did move up and and, and moved into management, but it it was a struggle for me often. And I remember one morning, we, you know, I'd get there at 4.30 a.m., and I got there one day, and we opened the doors at 5, and, and this parking lot where we worked was just covered in trash. And I walked in, and I saw that, and it was in a shopping center, but in my mind, I knew that this trash makes our store look bad. It wasn't our garbage. In about three hours, someone else would show up to clean it up, but I'm looking at it thinking, I can't leave that trash there. All of our customers are going to walk through it. So I'm at 5 a.m. picking up trash. And I'm having a conversation with God. And my conversation was, God, I don't think this is where you want me in life. Are you serious? It's 5 a.m. There's only like 100 people awake in our whole town, and I'm picking up trash. And I have studied at renowned universities, Lord. (laughs) What are you doing? And while I'm picking up this garbage, enjoying the cold morning air, I looked in, and every morning at 5 a.m., we had a group of guys who came in every day. And they grabbed their cup of coffee. I called them the morning council. They'd sit there for like an hour. And I got to know them over the course of time. They would even, they knew I was a pastor. They'd ask me questions. They'd say, hey, pastor, we have a question for you. I'm like, I'm kind of working, but I'd go over. And they'd ask me questions like, hey, we have an argument. Which language is the Bible written in, Old King James or Latin? The original. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? So, But so we'd have these conversations. Now, this morning, I'm picking up trash, and I'm looking in there at the morning council, and I'm complaining to God about my life and my significance, and I'm better than this. And I looked in there, and one guy was a mechanic his whole life. The other guy was a truck driver. And I remember looking at him. It was Howard and Tony. And Tony, actually, when I first met him, said, hey, my my wife goes to church. He goes, but I'm a scientist. I don't believe all that stuff. And the cool thing is, by the time I left that store, it was, I don't think it was me, but maybe part of the story is he actually was attending church with his wife and claimed to believe. It was really cool. But I'm out there that, sm- that morning picking up trash, and I looked up at him, and God said, are you better than those guys? Are you better than that truck driver? And I said, whoa, I thought, I thought it was. <laughs> no. I looked at them, and, and God just said, you know what? Where I have you is where you belong. 
Your significance is not found in picking up this trash right now. If this is what I have you doing the rest of your life, then just be okay with it because that is not defining who you are. Would you trust me with your significance? Because I guarantee you those two guys in there do not care that you went to a university. They don't care that you're picking up trash. They care about you and how you care about them. So would you get over yourself? And what's a barrier often to our humility in treating others more highly than ourselves is that we want to find significance in our position. And we look at circumstances. And we think that if we serve, then someone might see us more lowly than we are. When Jesus said, you know what? I created these people and I'm going to come and serve them. I love hearing stories about how some of you business men and women lead your businesses. We have some great examples in this church and we'll continue to try to get these stories in front of you of how they lead their work by serving the people they, they lead as Christ did. And you know what? I don't think any one of those business leaders would say my employees think less of me because I serve them. I think just the opposite. But we tell ourselves these lies. Oh, but my significance is found here. If we can trust our significance in the hands of the Father even in your marriage. Do you know serving your spouse is not going to make them think less of you? It's actually not. Serving your kids will not make them think less of you. Kids serving your parents will not make them think less of you. Write that down. All right. <laughs> Last thing is this. So we want to trust God for our identity, our name. We want to trust God for our significance. And finally, trust God for your purpose. Look what Jesus does in verse 8. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Verse 11 is the response from the Father. And now every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus found his purpose. We even know he wrestled with this. He had days when he said, God, are you sure this is the plan you have? Are you sure you want this to happen? I don't like this plan. The night before he was crucified, we find Jesus praying in the garden and saying, I'm willing to do what you want, Father, but if you have any other way, let's go ahead and, now's a good time. Now's a good time. But he ultimately said, but I trust you that your purposes are, good, are right. Where God has you is where he wants you right now. Now, it doesn't mean you're in the same spot the rest of your life. You may be in school. You may be looking at a promotion. You may be looking at a move. You may, something might be different in your life. But right now, you're there. Can you trust God that you're there for a purpose? Look for the circumstances where you are. I know in my life, I often, there's days when I just want to avoid people. I think pay at the pump at the gas station is like a gift from God. I do, because there's days I'm like, I need gas, and I don't want to go in and talk to anyone, and if the, the little thing doesn't work out there, I go to a different gas station, so, <laughs> just trying to be open to the Holy Spirit leading me, you know, <laughs> and so there are times when I seriously feel, just want to avoid people, and I'm, I'm not, like, just, I'm an ambivert, introvert and extrovert, but there's days I just want to avoid people, and I remember one day someone, um, I was walking out here, and there's always people on campus, and so we made eye contact. I'm like, oh, try to not make eye contact. This is going to lead to a conversation. I don't want to talk to anybody and be a pastor. And so we started this conversation. I just said, hey, how you doing? And then I, I was like, oh, he's going to ask for something. This guy's going to ask for something. 
And Jonathan's not here today, so I can't hand him off. <laughs> and, and we had this conversation about what's going on in his life, and, and he, said, he did ask for something. He said, hey, do you think you could just pray, for, pray with me? I'm looking for wisdom from God. <laughs> sometimes God has purposes that are related to where you are. And sometimes I fight it and say, God, I, I, come on, I don't want that. I, I've got other things. I've got another plan today. Today's me day. Today's rest day. But God said, I'm going to bring someone into your life today that needs you. Can you trust God with your purposes? I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up. When I think of all of these things, I think, what are the barriers to humility? Why do we not interact with one another in these ways? And the theme that often comes up is because we're always searching for ourselves. We want to find purpose in ourselves. We want identity from ourselves. We want to define what God is defining for us. And so people and relationships get in the way. God's plans get in our way. In the example of Jesus, I, I, I often think and think, what if Jesus just said, God the Father, um, you know what, not today. Not today. These people you called me to serve, I came down, I've been doing it, but you know what? They don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. Let's change the plan. Let's start over. What great humility did it take for him to say, they don't deserve this. They don't deserve my love today. They don't deserve my service today. They don't deserve my attention today. But I'm giving it to them. That attitude is transformed. That will change everything in your relationships because it changed everything for humanity. We're going to end our time here in a time of, of communion. For us, communion is a reminder of what Jesus has done. We have tables set up around the room and we're going to invite you at your own timing to go over to these tables and you can go alone. You can go with a friend, your family, it doesn't matter. If you want to find some space near the cross or around the room to just pray and reflect or write in your seat, you're welcome to do that. But during this time, we have a couple songs to go and take the bread, and the bread is a reminder of the life that Jesus lived and the body that was broken for you. The ultimate act of humility where he allowed himself to be given over for us. The ultimate example of how we can interact with others, of giving up ourselves. Jesus did for you and for me. And then the, we take the cup, which is a symbol of the blood of his covenant, which in the ancient world was, was a, a, an agreement he made with us that he said, this agreement I am making with you through the blood that is shed. And it's a promise he's making that he is enough for you. That he will save you from your sins and he'll never let you go. It's his covenant, his agreement with you. And it's one way. So when we go around the room here in just a moment and reflect in the time of communion, let's reflect remembering what Christ has done for you and for me and for your coworkers and for your roommate, for your teachers, for your students, for your boss. It's a reflection and a reminder of what God has done for the people living next to you, for your Starbucks barista who might be picking up trash at 5 a.m., that Jesus poured out his life for. We want to remember that, and we want to be people who are changed by that truth.
So pray with me as we enter a time of communion. God, we thank you for this time and we thank you for the reminder that your name is above all names. We thank you that though you are above all names, you made yourself low for, for us. And God, we could never perfectly follow your example. But Lord, through your life, may we have the motivation and the fuel to, to allow you to change us and to live through us and to help us to interact with others with humility. And so God, would you move in this place now and as we remember your life, your death, your resurrection through a time of communion, I ask that you would work in us, transform us, change us more and more into your likeness because of your presence. So we give you this time now, Lord, in your name.